Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. It is a Monday edition. We're getting back to work. I hope you had a great, great weekend and that you're looking forward to a great, great week this week. A lot of greats in there. Hope that didn't grate on you too much. This is Tony Bean, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as the Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I am currently interim pastor at uh, Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. So. Uh, if you don't have a church home, we'd be glad for you to come take a look at Five Forks on the weekend. We meet at 1030 for worship. Had a, over 200 people there this weekend. It was great. Uh, great service. Good day. Um, had our chili cook-off on Saturday, and it was won by, it was a fixed contest, so I really shouldn't even tell you about it. Um, I'm kidding. We had about 16 different uh, types of chili to choose from. The most unique Chili made with crab meat. Now, before you just run screaming into the night and say that that's the worst thing you've ever heard, trust me, it was delicious. I didn't think it would be that good either, <laughs> but I was determined to try it, and it really was. It was it was amazing. All right, uh, a couple of things from over the weekend. Let's let's talk a little bit of sports because it's just you know we're in March Madness. You can't go into March Madness Madness and uh, not talk about sports. So the Lady Gamecocks won the SEC tournament. No big surprise there, of course. Uh, they were expected to win. But there was a little bit of drama because they ended up playing Mississippi State. And you might remember that Mississippi State took them to overtime earlier in the season, which um, that, that was kind of interesting that they had to go to overtime. No overtime against Mississippi State in the semifinals on Saturday. The Lady Gamecocks won handily. Was it Mississippi State or Ole Miss? I think it was Ole Miss. For the championship? No, or, no, or, no, no, no. It was oh, semifinals. I'm not, I'm it was, not sure. It was, it was the semifinals. Uh, let me get back here and see if I can find. Well, anyway. Um, Lady Gamecocks won over Tennessee 74-58. to Game was fairly close in the first half. And Lady Gamecocks began to open up a little bit of a lead right before halftime. When they came back, they expanded on that lead and uh, won pretty handily. So Lady Gamecocks are undefeated on the season, and they'll go into, the, uh, of course, the NCAA women's bracket. Uh, they'll be ranked number one. All right. Um, let's see if we can get a couple of others. The 20, yep, the tournament's. Uh, set for for the ACC. A lot of people interested in that. Um, game number one on Tuesday will be Florida State versus Georgia Tech. That's at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. And then at, as we go through the day tomorrow, 4.30, it'll be number 10, Boston College versus Louisville. And then number 11, Virginia Tech versus Notre Dame. That's at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. So the games start at 2, go all the way into the evening tomorrow night. Wednesday, Syracuse at Wake Forest uh, or versus Wake Forest at noon. Pittsburgh 
will play the winner of um, the of game one. North Carolina will play the winner of game two, which will be either Boston College or Louisville. And North Carolina State will play the winner of game three, either Virginia Tech or Notre Dame. And then on Thursday, you've got number one Miami. Miami, by the way, won, has won the regular season of the ACC. It's only their second ACC title. And so congratulations to the Hurricanes. They play um, on Saturday. Nope, this is the – well, this is Thursday, excuse me. The ninth, they play the winner of game four. Then you've got Duke playing the winner of game, game five. And then Virginia – the winner of game six, and then number three, Clemson, plays the winner of game seven. Semifinals will be on Friday, and the ACC tournament championship game, of course, will be on Saturday, March the 11th. So we're getting into March Madness, just giving you a little preview of what's coming. Um, for with, for the SEC, the Gamecocks, or the men's team, of course, uh, didn't do all that well. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Uh, but in baseball – the, the men's baseball team did very well. Uh, they won the season opener with Clemson. Uh, they, they won the series, I should say, the, the first series. Most people think, you know, in South Carolina in particular, college baseball is not here until South Carolina and Clemson play. So they played one game at Floor Field. Uh, they played, and then they played back at USC, and South Carolina wins the series 3-2. to two. Uh, so that's that gets you up to date on a little bit of what's going on sports wise. Um, it's a it's kind of a you know a downtime. You get between football and baseball, and you got the ACC tournament. So that's one of the, or the uh, NCAA tournament March Madness. That's one of the reasons it gets so much attention is because it's kind of the sport that's culminating. It's what everybody wants to see. It's what everybody's interested in sports wise. So there'll be a lot of people watching. Uh, you're you're going to have people out of work this week. Okay, let's just <laughs> if they're not out of work, they'll be sitting at their desk. They'll have they'll have their iPhone over here. They'll be monitoring the game, or maybe monitoring on their computer screen. They got a little screen down here in the lower left hand side. I mean, it's just stuff like that's going to happen because it's basketball. All right. Um, I want to thank Austin Barker for being here last week. He did a great job running the board while Gary was out. Gary's back today and uh, doing great. And so Austin, um, you know, I enjoyed having him here, having him to, to talk to and go back and forth. That's always a lot of fun, and I appreciate the work that he put in. Just a quick reminder, his radio talk, 919-897, is changing formats uh, coming up on March 31st when Gary Miller retires, then the, this will no longer be a talk radio format. Uh, it's going to be a music format of some sort. And so you'll still be able to find this show, and you're hearing announcements on the on the station, other programs that you'll be able to follow in different ways. But if you enjoy this show, the way you'll be able to follow it is Facebook Live, um, I'm, I'm expecting to be, I think I'm going to rum, rumble instead of YouTube because I would get kicked off of YouTube pretty quick. And so rumble, I'll have a lot better, uh, life expectancy over there as far as being able to stay on video. And so I think that's what we're going to do. Uh, I saw a mock-up of what the website's going to look like over the weekend and it's going to be fantastic. I mean, it's just a great looking website. Uh, it's going to be truth and politics and culture 
with Dr. Tony Beam. Um, I, I think that the website address is going to be drtonybeam.com. It'll be drtonybeam.com. So um, it'll be easy to find. Uh, it's not up yet. If you go there now, there's not going to be anything there. We're still working on it. But you can write that down, drtonybeam at uh, uh, tonybeam.com. That's all you need. And um, so what what you'll find there when the site is built out is you'll find articles that I'm writing. Um, you'll find um, a, a way to stream this program live from 7.30 to 8.30, Monday through Friday. We'll be streaming live, and you'll be able to subscribe to the podcast by going there to the website. You'll be able to communicate with me and read stuff that I've written, um, and we're just getting started. There's going to be a lot more opportunity there as time goes by, but we're going to try to get the website established, get the show established, get the podcast established. Uh, I've got some plans for trying to expand that out a little bit by promoting it through some different venues, uh, different established ministries that have agreed to partner with me to get the word out that we have the podcast and we have the website. So, if you want to continue following the show, I'm going to be around, and there'll be opportunities for you to do that. You can Bluetooth it through your car. You can live stream it uh, just like you do now on Facebook, and I hope you'll spread the word and start building. Help me build the audience because I'm going to be talking about truth and politics and culture just like we do here every day. A couple of things coming up in uh, South Carolina legislature this week. In the House, it looks like they will be debating the hate crimes bill on the floor of the House on Wednesday, that came out of judiciary sort of unexpectedly, according to what several House members have told me uh, last week. But it will be debated on Wednesday. And the problem, the problem with the hate crimes bill as it is right now is that it has the Bostock language in there, which is from the Supreme Court. And what it says in the bill is that the word sex in the hate crimes bill will be defined by the Bostock language from the Supreme Court. That language says that sex must include sexual preference and uh, gender identity. Those two things, that's exactly the way that it is uh, described, sexual preference and gender identity. And the problem with that, of course, is once you put that into law, then that becomes a springboard. And I, I know people who think that this is not true. Um, but it's a it's a springboard for the the le for those who would like to come against Christian organizations to be able to use that definition in other areas of the law. Now, one of the one of the ways that we know this, I mean, there's a great article, and I've sent this out to lawmakers, and I've asked them to please read it. Um, it's it comes from um, Her the Heritage Foundation. And it was put together by uh, John Carlo Canapero, who's the senior legal fellow at the Edwin Meese III Center, which is associated with the Heritage Foundation. So this is what he says. Supreme Court case uh, decided last year is a cautionary tale of the legal equivalent of the law of unintended consequences. And this is what I've, I keep saying to our lawmakers, particularly right now in the House, because that's where this is focused is unintended consequence. Bostock versus Clayton County was a 6-3 opinion holding that discrimination on the basis of sex for the purpose of Title VII 
which forbids discrimination in employment, includes discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. That's actual sexual preference is the actual word from Bostock. The Bostock decision immediately raised the question of whether on the basis of sex means sexual orientation and gender identity for all other laws that use that term, and, and there are several. For example, if Bostock applied to Title IX, which forbids discrimination in education, it would seem to also forbid single-sex sports teams and sex-specific bathrooms and locker rooms. To be sure, Gorsuch tried to cabin the court's decision to Title VII, saying we have not, we have not had the benefit of adversarial testing about the meaning of other statutes' terms, and we do not prejudge any such questions today. The problem with that, however, is that it's not the way the lower courts work. Now, and, and this is what I'm about to share with you, is absolutely true in the way that the courts look at the law once it's established by the Supreme Court. Once you get a definition of the word sex that includes sexual identity and sexual preference, which is sexual orientation, once you get that codified by the Supreme Court, then it comes down into the district courts in various places. Now that some time has passed, I'm back to the article, we've been able to look at what the lower courts have done with Bostock, at least so far. And sure enough, they've applied it to other statutes. In at least a dozen cases, the courts have unsurprisingly extended Bostock's definition of sex in Title VII to other statutes. In Grimm versus Gloucester County School Board and Adams versus School Board of St. John's County, for example, the Fourth and Eleventh Circuit Courts of Appeal respectively applied Bostock's definition to Title IX and struck down sex-specific bathroom policies in public schools. And Hecox versus Little, a district court in Idaho, applied it to Title IX in women's sports and struck down a state law that preserved women's sports for biological females. That case is now on appeal. Gorsuch's attempt to limit Bostock to Title VII was ignored by those courts. Now, I can go on here. There are plenty of other examples. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. If this language survives in the House version of the hate crimes bill, and if it were to make it into law in South Carolina, that's going to open up the door for courts in South Carolina to interpret this uh, definition of Bostock in other statutes of the law. And you're going to have challenges. You're going to have challenges to churches that want to hire exclusively people who believe the way that the church preaches and teaches. Uh, you're going to have Christian nonprofits. They're going to be challenged on their hiring practices, on the stands that they take. You're going to have, if, if, a, if a school decides that they want to make sure that their locker rooms, bathrooms are protected, that you don't have men masquerading as women going into those bathrooms and intimate spaces, then this language is going to be used in the lower courts in favor of allowing that kind of thing to go on. It's going to open up lawsuits and the potential of them against Anderson, North Greenville, uh, Charleston Southern, Bob Jones University, uh, Columbia International. I mean, our Christian institutions of higher learning will be susceptible if the Bostock language is applied to other statutes the way that it's being applied to other statutes in other states. 
this language needs to come out of the hate crimes bill. If we've got to have a if we've got to have a hate crimes bill, it shouldn't be about stalking. It shouldn't be about items that could lead to the loss of religious liberty. It should be focused on major crimes. This hate crimes law that's out there now in the House focuses on major crimes. I personally don't think we need a hate crimes bill. We already have statutes in place that can enhance penalties for people who act out of animus toward people of religion or um, gender or race. And so I, I don't see this as something that's necessary. But if they absolutely, positively have to pass this for whatever reason, whether it's to appease Democrats or whether it's to get a law on the books that specifically addresses this, because South Carolina and um, uh, South Dakota are the only two states that don't have this law currently on the books, That's, you'll hear that a lot, that we need to have this law passed. So if, if, it, if, if we can't stop it, which I, I would like to see it not pass, but if we can't not pass it, then it's we've got to get the language. It's in Article 2. The definition of sex cannot be tied to language from the Bostock case, which is already being used by the lower courts in other situations to apply to other statutes that will limit religious liberty and the ability of Christian organizations to remain Christian. I think it's incredibly important that we understand that. All right, the second thing, I don't know if they're going to, I think the Judiciary Committee, full judiciary is going to have to take up the Equine Advancement Act, which should be called the Paramutual Betting Bill, because that's what it does. It allows paramutual betting on horse racing. Now, it's going to limit it to horse racing to start with, but please understand this. In the same way that medical marijuana will open the door for recreational, I don't care what lawmakers say, they're going to tell you that it'll never happen in South Carolina, that medical marijuana will only be for medical purposes, that they're going to limit it to that, that the bill is going to be the most conservative in the country, it's going to keep every everything in order, and we're not going to have to worry about recreational here in South Carolina. I, just please don't believe that, Okay. Um, medical marijuana is a path to the legalization of marijuana for it to become recreational. It just that you do not have marijuana lobbyist advocates coming to South Carolina, spending a lot of money doing what they do in order to get medical marijuana passed. They're not going to make any money off of that. The state's not going to make any money off of medical marijuana. It's actually going to end. It'll end up costing money. But as soon as you flip the switch and you move from medical to recreational, then you're going to have, I mean, there's going to be all kinds of money. And people think that vice, just like in paramutual betting, they think that vice, you can take something that has a bad purpose and you can turn something virtuous in, uh, bring something virtuous out of it. That's never worked and it's not going to work in these cases. But medical marijuana is going to be voted on in the Senate this week, very likely. I mean, this thing just will not die. Senator Tom Davis is determined that we're going to have marijuana in the state of South Carolina. Now, what amazes me is listen to the three bills that I've just described. We have no, we have abortion in South Carolina at 20 weeks. Okay, We've got people coming from out of state to have their abortions here 
because we have a very liberal law when it comes to abortion. And yet we have a legislature in Columbia right now that could be on the verge of passing a hate crimes bill with the Bostock language in it unless they take it out this week. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that that's going to come out when this is debated, likely on Wednesday. So you've, you've, got, you've got hate crimes, you've got marijuana, and you've got paramutual betting. So those three things that would are, – are those conservative – I'm just asking you the question. Are those conservative things that conservatives are clamoring for? Do you, do you know, other than this group that has been pushing for medical marijuana for years, do you know of grassroots conservatives that are out there just begging for South Carolina to become a location for paramutual betting, just, just begging – for us to get a hate crimes bill that would actually include language that could be used statutorily to undermine uh, religious liberty in in this state, uh, that are that are just begging to have medical marijuana to open the door for marijuana to become recreational in South Carolina, which is the end goal. And there are, and we've gone over this and over this. I I feel like sometimes I'm 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 just. I'm, I'm spreading cheese whiz into the wind here because I we, we've talked about there are medications that will do what any medicinal value that you would get from smoking marijuana or from what, any any way that you would consume it, whether it's smoking or vaping or whatever. It's, they're, they're acting as if vaping marijuana is going to make a difference, and it does make a difference. It's worse. So... There, there are plenty of, way, plenty of ways that the medical purposes can be extracted without getting high. But since the purpose of marijuana is to get high, that's, that's exactly what they're aiming for here. So just keep these things in mind as we go into the week. Uh, I, don't know that, I don't know that anything can be done to, to stop it. We've got, we've got normally conservative senators that would say, you know, that it would take their conservative credentials and, and they'll say, well, I've, I've got to vote for this because it's going to pass, so we'll just try to make it as painless as possible. Uh, you cannot make this a painless bill. The pain from opening the, the door to legalization of marijuana will be apparent in years to come. Uh, I just don't understand why we – these are the three things that we're going to talk about in a red state um, along with hopefully constitutional carry. I know Josiah Magnuson over in the House is trying to get his parental rights, a transparency bill um, moving forward. I mean, shouldn't these things be the things that we're really concerned about in, us, in the state? Parental rights, protecting life, beginning at conception. I mean, it seems to me that that's what the people voted for when they voted by 18 percentage points to keep Henry McMaster and Pamela Evett in as governor and lieutenant governor. We, we had a pretty big red wave in South Carolina, but that red wave is giving us what? Paramutual betting, medical marijuana, hate crimes legislation that has Supreme Court language that codifies sexual preference and gender identity. I don't understand that in the state of South Carolina. If you can explain it to me, I'd be glad to listen. 
Okay, it's been an interesting weekend for Democrats and Republicans in D.C., um, and uh, one of the things has to do directly with the District of Columbia. We'll get to that in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about a Wall Street Journal article today by Andrew Ackerman and Lindsey Wise that is reports that the Senate voted 50 to 46 to reverse ESG rules for retirement funds. Now, this came up. The House has already voted on this. They sounded off on it. They defeated the same or, or passed, I should say. It's a little bit confusing. The Biden administration Department of Labor is putting rules in place um, that would force companies, that would give the companies, I should say, the guidelines, hedge fund managers, investment firms, would have to consider ESG in, in, in all of their investing. So in other words, your 401k now is going to have to be woke if the Biden administration gets its way on this. When it comes to the environment, when it comes to global warming, when it comes to sexual identity and uh, uh, the idea of uh, transgenderism. I mean, all those things are going to have to be considered by investment firms when they're trying to build a portfolio for, for you in the stock market. So the Senate voted on Wednesday to overturn the Biden administration regulation. You know, when the Biden administration puts a regulation in place, the, the Senate and the House can concur and and turn, overturn that regulation. And in this case, that's what they've done. Now, it doesn't matter. I mean, I wish I could tell you that this was a great victory for freedom, that it was a great victory for Republicans, that it was a big pushback against ESG. But the fact is, President Biden's going to veto this bill. And they don't have near the votes to overturn a veto. I mean, I, I, even if more Democrats were to flip to not support or to, to not sustain a veto, uh, they're never going to get the number that it would take to overturn President Biden's veto in the House or in the Senate. So this is going to stand. But it is a rebuke by the president's own party. The fact that there were some Democrats that voted for this. Now, over in the House, it's, it's not that big of a surprise because— Republicans have a slim majority in the House, and it passed by just a few votes, 204 to 216. But in the Senate, there, there were several Democrats in red states that decided, no, we're not going to vote for this. And I, I look, I'm, I'm almost certain, I, it, you know, I'm not in D.C., I, I don't, I'm not up there all the time, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't talk to well. I do talk to uh, uh, folks in D.C. pretty regularly, but I can almost guarantee you that these senators that are vulnerable in red states were given the green light to vote against this, knowing that a veto was coming, and that it it, it was going to give them the opportunity to look tough on a woke agenda. When they come up for re-election, they can point to that and say, look, we, we tried to push back against this, knowing full well that President Biden was going to veto it and it was going to pass anyway, or it was going to fail to pass because of, I should say, because of President Biden's veto. 
This is coming from the Wall Street Journal. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the bill in question would give investment professionals less flexibility to make prudent decisions and forces MAGA Republican ideology down the throats of the private sector. It does exactly the opposite. That, that is a complete fabrication of what this bill does. It forces, let me, let me just reverse some terminology here, it forces, it, it lessens the flexibility that money managers will have because they have to consider things like not profitability, but whether a company is making strides in environmental to curb uh, global warming in environmental areas. It, the, the companies will be forced to demonstrate how diverse they are, whether or not that they're supporting the LGBTQ plus agenda, whether they're promoting people who are, um, you know, uh, adherents to the LGBTQ agenda, including people who are transgender. So, as you know, it doesn't force MAGA Republican ideology down anybody's throat, but it does folk force the woke agenda of Democrats, progressives in particular, down the throats of the private sector. It forces these companies to take these things into consideration, there should have no place. There should be no place for politics in investing because investments should be based on profitability and not on whether a company is making some kind of, of ESG promise to support diversity. Republican lawmakers targeted the Labor Department rule in, in question with a legislative tool known as the Congressional Review Act. It allows lawmakers to overturn a newly issued regulation on an expedited schedule with a simple majority vote in Congress rather than the 60 votes needed to advance most legislation. Mr. Braun, speaking to reporters ahead of the vote, said the ESG rule allows investment managers to push a political agenda at the expense of retirement savers. This is government in overdrive. That's absolutely true. There's no, there, that, that, is, that is the government interfering in the private sector pushing this idea of ESG and making it, making it a requirement. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and Montana Senator John Tester voted in favor of the measure, which was introduced by Indiana Republican Mike Braun. Braun is the one, when I said, quoted Mr. Braun, speaking to reporters ahead of the vote, talked about this being government in overdrive. In a statement, Mr. Tester said he is opposing the Labor Department rule because it undermines retirement accounts for working Montanans and is wrong for my state. Last November, the Labor Department drafted a new rule under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act allowing fiduciaries the right to consider climate change and ESG factors as they invested in privately held retirement plans. Considering ESG factors has become common in the financial world as hedge funds and investment firms have sought to address climate change and environmental impacts. Yes, I mean, this idea of being woke is being embraced by these companies to the detriment of investors. Um, it, it doesn't it, it should not matter one iota whether a comp, a company is making strides as a company 
to fight global warming, what should matter is, is that company being profitable? I mean, how many oil companies do you think that these hedge fund managers and investment and fiduciary uh, funds, uh, managers that are investing, taking your money and investing it, how many oil companies do you think they're going to support? Oh, but they, they may take your money and put it in wind farms or into um, solar panels or something like that. And, you know, oil companies are making money because the fuel for our economy is still oil and gas and traditional energy sources. But if the money gets pushed away from that, I mean, you, if, if you want to actually make a profit, you want to be invested in companies that are out making a profit because they're invested in what works, not some pie-in-the-sky ideal of diversity. And, I, you know, that's why Senator Kimbrell, um, and I know his bill has been supported by others in South Carolina, we've got an, an ESG bill that would prevent companies from doing this in our state. And we need to get behind that. That's something that needs to pass, and it needs to pass in this session so that our banks our, uh, that, and, and the institutions that hold on to our retirement funds and invest those type funds are not overrun by woke ideology that's going to hurt everybody's retirement fund and bottom line. Just a reminder, this show will soon be called Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. And it will be um, available 7.30 to 8.30, streaming live at a website, which will be drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com. Now, if you go there now, you're not going to be able to, to see anything or hear anything. So um, just, you know, it, because it, the website's still under construction. It's, I've got a mock-up of it. It looks great. I'm super excited about it, about what you're going to be able to do there, the information you'll be able to find. Um, I'm going to do my best to stay in this fight because I think it's critical that we have the truth presented in a world that is steadily gravitating away from the truth, obfuscating, there you go, obfuscating the truth. Um, just, you know, we, we've got to stay focused on a biblical understanding of a objectivity, which is objective truth presented from the Bible and applied to politics and culture, because obviously politics and culture affect each other. And if we're not engaged in this system, we're going to have things done to us by the government that is very difficult for us to live under. We've, we've enjoyed our freedoms here in this country for so long. And there's a progressive element in this world, and particularly in the United States right now, and it's located in the Democrat Party, that wants to completely upend the system that made America great and replace it with a form of socialism and Marxism. I mean, that, that's what they're the, – there's all of this confusion when it comes to sexuality and gender, and it, it's just it's, – it has a design, a purpose, and that's to upend – the way society works today, the way our culture is held together today, doing away with the family, doing away with any type of religious expression. I mean, those are those are goals. 
that Marxists have had for a long time because those, those institutions, the church, the family, and in some cases education, Christian education in, in particular, have been the bulwarks that have pushed back against this progressive idea of America being a bad place. And they're trying to rewrite history with the 1619 Project to make to try to suggest that America was founded on racism, not on liberty, freedom, the right for people to live their lives the way they see fit without an oppressive government. They're, they're trying to, to, to reform the foundation of the country and saying it's all about slavery. It's all a lie. But so many people don't even know that this debate is going on. And the ones that do, many of them are being taken in by Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 19 or, or the 18, uh, 1618 Project. I'm sorry. I have to get the, the right century in here. All right. Um, moving on. Democrats are melting down. This is according to National Review today uh, because President Biden has decided to stand with Republicans when it comes to uh, the District of Columbia City Council's overhaul of its criminal code. Now, the District of Columbia's criminal code needs to be overhauled. There haven't been changes made to it since 1901. So there are all kinds of archaic references that happen in all criminal codes if they don't get overhauled from time to time. I mean, you're, you've got laws that have to do, for example, in New York with horse and buggies, regulating uh, the horse and buggy industry, uh, and, and things that no longer have any, any that, that are just not germane to the city anymore. Um, and, and it's important. I mean, I think it's fine when you're overhauling the criminal code to get rid of archaic terms and laws that no longer have an application. But here's the problem. In the midst of doing that, the District of Columbia decided to start messing around with criminal penalties for major crimes. And the District of Columbia is already crime-ridden. And the main thing that's on the table here is that the Biden administration understands that if President Biden is going is to have any path to re-election, his path to re-election is going to have to run along the lines of being in favor of being tough on crime. Because it, the American people are not going to put up with this. They're already calling for Kim Gardner, the prosecutor in Chicago, to be kicked out. They're calling for um, you know the, these prosecute, the prosecutor in San Francisco got uh, kicked out of office by the voters. Prosecutor in Los Angeles came close to getting kicked out. These are George Soros-backed prosecutors that believe in being soft on crime. And crime has exploded in these areas. Mayor Lori Lightfoot from Chicago just got turned out of office. I mean, the first mayor in 40 years to not win re-election. And the reason was crime. There's been a tremendous spike in crime under her tenure. Now, there's other reasons that Lori Lightfoot came in third place and therefore is not even going to be in a runoff when it comes to the mayoral election in Chicago. 
But one of the major reasons, the the driving force, was the, was the rise in crime. Everywhere you look in blue-run cities, Democrat-run cities, you find spikes in crime. D.C.'s no different. And so when they decided to overhaul the criminal code, the influence of these Soros-backed prosecutors leaked into that overhaul. So you had, you, you know, you've, you've got a, a reduction in sentencing for major crimes that, you know, even President Biden couldn't swallow. But now the big controversy here is that President Biden made it clear, or at least he let it be known um, behind the scenes that he was going to, uh, that he would veto or, or, well, let me get the wording right here. Let me go back to the story uh, from National Review. Last month, 173 House Democrats voted along with what they thought was the White House stance that Biden would veto the resolution in an attempt to stand up to the district for district's home rule. Instead, Biden made the revelation to Senate Democrats during lunch on Thursday that in the process, and in the process, angered colleagues across the Capitol complex. Now, the revelation is is the the idea that they feel like the President Biden is hanging them out to dry, and it sort of revealed a pretty deep fissure in the middle of the Democrat Party. How big a deal is it that President Biden is siding with House and Senate Republicans in overruling the District of Columbia City Council's overhaul of its criminal code? Well, that... Normally, that would be seen as a local issue, but it's been catapulted into a national issue because of the vitriol and the anger that's coming from House Democrats. I mean, they are livid at President Biden. And they're, they're, I can't even read some of these, these tweets and things that they put out because they're, they're laced with profanities. I mean, I, I know I'm the last person. I guess, on the planet that thinks that there should be civility in the way that we communicate with each other because it's just unbelievable to me. I mean, I, I read what people write, and they lace all of their uh, tweets, their their articles with the F word, and, and, and it's just full of profanities. And I, like, nobody cares. The crassness of the culture has gotten to the point that, that nobody cares about those things. And it's not helping us as a society, I'm telling you. In November 2022, the District of Columbia Council passed the Revised Criminal Code Act. The controversy arose when the Criminal Code Revision Commission included some significant reductions in criminal penalties. The new law eliminates life sentences and gets rid of mandatory minimums for every crime except first-degree murder. Under the old law, the maximum penalty for a previously convicted felon using a gun to commit more violence was 15 years. Under the new law, it drops to four years. So if you're, if you're a career criminal and you use a gun in a violent crime, if, if somebody doesn't die but property is destroyed, you threaten people, Normally, you could go to jail for 15 years for using a gun in a crime like that. I guess it's so common in D.C. now that they feel like that they're, they're being prejudiced against criminals. So they're going to reduce that down to four years for a major crime. 
with the possibility that the assailant could have killed somebody because they used a, a gun. And this is why President Biden has decided to side with Republicans, because if he's going to get reelected as president, it, it's not going to work if he's going to be soft on crime. And I think his staff understands that because I don't think he understands anything. But he's being told correctly by those that are running his campaign, hey, you better do this if you hope to get reelected. 